This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So, good morning, everyone. So, good to see some smiling faces out there. <laughs> I'm actually, um, today, Jess asked me, she was kind of... <laughs> Uh, a little insistent that I come up with a, a Dharma talk title before um, before today. And as you, those of you who have been coming to AZC Dharma talks, when I've given them, they rarely, <laughs> I rarely have a topic um, before I start. Um, but in particular, with uh, through Jess and Todd Cornette, who is the chair of our uh, Austin Zen Center Development Committee, I was asked to talk about uh, the Paramita of Donna or generosity. And maybe I should just start by saying that generosity naturally brings up the feeling of gratitude. They're so tightly coupled. So maybe I'd like to start today by expressing my gratitude. And uh, there are too many names to name, but a couple things, a couple, uh, uh, couple things stand out right at this particular moment. Um, after I've been away from Austin to go to my home temple of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center to sit Sashin, it took a lot for me to be able to take that time to go and sit for seven days um, in a dark, deep valley in California. And uh, I just bow to Kokyo for holding the teaching space at Austin Zen Center and to our Eno and Doan Rio and to our Tonto who is away today um, for holding the, the practice space so that a retreat could happen this past weekend at Austin Zen Center. Thank you so much. And then I also just want to say that um, as a little bit of a many times people don't necessarily know what the Austin Zen Center board does or what they are up to. But I want to really express my gratitude to our board president, uh, Shu. When he became the board president, he uh, one of the suggestions that he came up with after some discussion, um, we decided that we would alternate board meetings every month. So the board meets once a month for about an hour and a half to two hours um, is when we have our meetings. And we decided a number of months ago that we would um, alternate between kind of the agenda-based business meetings that we have as a board. Um, alternating those meetings with um, visioning meetings maybe is a good way to discuss them, but um, really kind of going back to like, why do we do what we do? Right? And, and actually, what are we doing here? <laughs> and so the last few board meetings that have been the visioning meetings, we have, uh, we had a one, one uh, visioning meeting was on the question, who do we serve? Who do we as the Austin Zen Center community and the board in particular, who do we serve? And uh, that was a very 
beautiful discussion that, you know, as you can imagine, the question of whom, who do we serve ranged from, I guess it ranged from, you know, our members and supporters to our residents and the practitioners who uh, enter into practice here in, in Austin to the homeless person who is in the side yard sometimes to um, the wider community of Austin and beyond to our branching stream sanghas. And ultimately, I think it came down to on one side, it came down to, well, who do we serve? We serve all beings without exception. That's pretty broad. <laughs> and so on that side of the spectrum, we serve all beings. But then narrowing it down in particular, I think we serve anyone who is inspired to practice and we serve them so that we can support them in their practice of Buddha Dharma and Sangha. And um, yeah, that's a big group, right? <laughs> At our second visioning meeting, the one we had most recently, the topic of discussion was what are our resources? And as we brainstormed our resources, they were, you know, we kind of did a whiteboard and lots of many, we have so many resources, um, you know, from material resources of having a temple, having a temple building and having our, our side yard, which has helped us through the pandemic and will continue to serve us and serve our community. And we have, um, the resource of all of the many hands of people who volunteer their time and labor and talent to creating a space that is welcoming and nourishing for the practice of all beings. So that includes, you know, people who show up and scrape paint, <laughs> all the people who, who, who joined us in that and the people who came in and painted you know, when our uh, when it was determined that our painting crew was not doing so well, the hired painting crew, um, to beautifying our grounds and having a garden space, not just having the garden space itself. Thank you so much, Sherry, and many others, but also to provide a a time for others to be able to join in and to be able to contribute. So Sherry holds a Sundays in the garden every Sunday, unless there's a retreat. And that in and of itself is immeasurable to be able to give the gift of being able to give a gift. Right. And then to, you know, taking care of our, uh, our temple in terms of people who cheat in incensors and light candles in the morning and make flower arrangements. You know, all of these are done as, um, as they're given as gifts, right? They're given as the gift of not just the result of the gift, but the intention, being able to give that intention and that aspiration and to nurture and kindle our own, you know, internal uh, energy for practice to allow us in effect, to express our Buddha nature, which is, I guess, maybe even saying our Buddha nature is a little odd. I'll get a little bit more into that. Like, is it ours? Is it others? 
Is it just a fact of uh, our existence? So in these various discussions, um, especially we had this board meeting this past week on the question of what are our resources, they were vast and wide. And yet there is something in there that towards the end, I think I brought up a question of what resources, what do we do that maybe take up resources that, you know, may not be so, uh, so much in service of our Buddha Dharma and Sangha. So I think uh, I, I had mentioned um, something about, you know, administrative resources or administrative technology, like serving uh, the community by all the, the hidden ways of like being able to sign up for things and being able to track members and supporters and, and all of that uh, using technology, which is actually quite time consuming. Um, you know, I think I mentioned at that meeting, just like the particular, you know, creating a form like the sign up form for Rohatsu Sashin took, I don't know, 12 hours of efforts. Um, largely Joel, who has been tirelessly, well, maybe not tirelessly, <laughs> extending himself to, um, to make sure that things connect in the right way so that they, they function. And this, uh, I mentioned Todd because he has brought up, uh, I think uh, Drew made the announcement about the matching gift and uh, ending on November 30th, which is the date called uh, Giving Tuesday. And Giving Tuesday, I'd never really heard, I mean, I'd heard of Giving Tuesday and kind of in the back of my mind, I, I knew that Giving Tuesday, or I thought that Giving Tuesday kind of arose out of a kind of a, a response to the kind of rampant consumerism in our culture of, you know, Black Friday, which I think is the day after Thanksgiving. Is that right? Where, you know, everyone, everything's on sale and buy this now, this is your chance to get this and procure that. And, and all of that is like, so Giving Tuesday came, um, I looked up their website to, to learn a little bit more about what that what, what it was. And I just want to read the the sort of blurb that they have, because when I read it, I thought, oh, this is more than just like a, an antidote to consumerism. This is much deeper and so much more in alignment with the Bodhisattva path and the expression of our innate Buddha nature, our pure mind. So here it says, Giving Tuesday reimagines a world built upon shared humanity and generosity. Our global network collaborates year round to inspire generosity around the world with a common mission to build a world where generosity is a part of everyday life. Whether it's making someone smile, helping a neighbor or stranger out, showing up for an issue or people we care about, or giving some of what we have to those who need our help. Every act of generosity counts and everyone has something to give. Giving Tuesday recognizes that we can drive an enormous amount of positive change by rooting our everyday actions, decisions, and behavior in radical generosity, which is they define as the concept 
that the suffering of others should be as intolerable to us as our own suffering. So um, I thought, well, damn, <laughs> we should have been in, you know, uh, uh, practicing Giving Tuesday, you know, uh, since 2012 or since beginningless time. This is our practice is to, um, to really deeply look at the perfection of Dana Paramita. So many of you know we of the six perfections that we practice. And it's interesting, the, the Paramitas are perfections, that's the, the, uh, the term for Paramitas, perfection. And the six paramitas range from, so the first, and I think it's interesting that this is, they do come in an order. Sometimes you think of them as like all coming up together, but there is definitely a way of looking at them as they start in a particular order and they develop as you develop each one. The first paramita is that of generosity, dana paramita. And then it moves into sila or morality, ethical, ethical conduct, then to kshanti or patience, which can give rise to virya or energy, and then giving rise to samadhi, concentration, all the way to the sixth paramita of prajna or wisdom. And I just want to remark that in other lists, you know, Buddhists are very fond of lists, but other kind of lists of virtues, or an example is Dogen's four methods of guidance for the Bodhisattva. The first one that is enumerated is that of giving. And it's not just giving, right? There's, there's giving but there's so many ways of giving that don't really feel like generosity, right? They don't feel like generous giving. And so it's interesting to think of, um, you know, when one gives something, where is it coming? What are, where is the giving? What is the giving coming out of? So the perfection of giving is the generous heart. So the cultivation of maybe the mind of abundance as opposed to a mind of lack or um, not enough. And I don't know about you, but um, lack is definitely something that I myself have struggled with in my life, um, despite being given innumerable gifts throughout my life. It's, you know, lack can still creep in there. This feeling of, you know, whether it's I'm not enough or uh, I, you know, uh, don't have enough, right? These feelings of um, lack or mm, maybe even a certain kind of stinginess, these are, you know, stinginess is a, is a hindrance, right? Covetousness, wanting to keep something. And where does that come from? Where does the, where does, you know, lack or lack mentality uh, come from, I think ultimately it comes from fear. And our original mind, Buddha nature, 
is kind of like just the, um, well, I don't want to say it that way, but it doesn't come from fear, right? It actually comes from a vast, incredible spaciousness that whether we know it or not is always present. Our ability to be awake to our life, to be awake to this moment, to be connected to uh, our intention and our actions and the fruits of our actions. So maybe a little bit more on that in a bit. I was reflecting, so about a few weeks ago, we had our Sejiki ceremony. And one of the main, you know, we make a lot of offerings to perform a Sejiki ceremony. And in Buddhist monasteries, I think they have a, they perform some version of this, of this ceremony, the Khan Ramon, the Gate of Sweet Dew is chanted every day. Um, and at Tassajara, where I just was, they chant, they do the ceremony without a lot of the, you know, without the huge altar, but they do that ceremony um, on every personal day, at the end of a personal day before going back into the um, uh, the more vigorous schedule of being on uh, uh, on that schedule. <laughs> so I um, maybe say a little bit about my trip from the last week, last week going to Tassajara for Sashin. Um, a few of you maybe may have been to, maybe you were at the departing ceremony that we held for Tim Kroll when he, I don't know when it was, I can't even remember, time is such a strange thing, but a few months ago when Tim left, we had a little bit of an exchange, which is very, you know, it often happens at departing ceremonies. And I can't remember the exchange exactly, but I do remember my words to him as uh, like sort of the final words before he left the Zendo. And I think I said something along the lines of, you know, uh, I don't know, something like, thank you for stepping forward into a life of dignity and respect. Not just for departing and going into the monastery, but for his vow to save all beings manifesting in his priest ordination. Um, which is a, you know, a, just a different form of the lay, a lay ordination of taking up a vow to live for the benefit of all beings. And reflecting on those words later, like they just can't kind of came out like this life of dignity and respect. And many of you have heard me talk about the, uh, the phrase memitsu no kafu, which is, uh, the, kind of the character of our school of Soto Zen of careful, sometimes it's translated as careful attention to detail is the family way or the family wind. And it's, it's really the emphasis is on the care, right? The attention to detail is in so many different things. And it, it's, it's not like detail in the sense of like an obsessive compulsive detail, <laughs> which it can fall into. <laughs> I definitely have had that happen myself and seen it in others where it can be, you know, where the fixation, you can become fixated on the detail and lose the, the forest for the trees. 
So it's this care, the careful attention of maybe expressed as, uh, as the three minds of magnanimous mind, parental mind or tender mind, and joyful mind, which is um, Dogen Zenji comments on extensively in his Tenzo Kyokun, which I'll get back to as well. So when Tim left for Tassajara, um, you know, it's been a long, it had been a long time since I'd been back to the monastery. And I ref- realized when I got there, um, so I think this first couple days, I, I, maybe not the first, yeah, the first day at least, I kind of, maybe at the 350 wake up bell, I think I was like, why, why did I do this? <laughs> That's a confession on my part. Um, you know, I, needed a vacation <laughs> but no no after a day or two it was it became so abundantly clear and i realized that it had it had been maybe 9 years since i did a zen sashin without like just going in and sitting it without planning it holding it cooking for it <laughs> you know so the gift um to be able to go drop into a practice period um, in a place as magical and maybe magical and yet ordinary as Tassajara, such an incredible opportunity. And the other thing about the departing ceremony, I think, and Bruce just had his departing ceremony not so long ago, where it ends with may you, you know, this wish of may you go forth to wherever you're going, to another temple, to the marketplace, but may you go with gift-bestowing hands. And I just have to say, to, um, to have a gift to be able to give, we all know this, to be able to give a gift, no matter how large or small, is uh, just so nourishes our own heart, not just nourishes in terms of the receiver, but the giver, the receiver and gift, just the whole, all of it coming up together. And, you know, our, we have a, you know, in, I guess, American culture, there are, uh, there are practices that before maybe they get too commercialized, like the practice of Thanksgiving, which is coming up soon. And uh, our Sangha workday, we will be having a harvest lunch. And so the practice of being able to cook for and, you know, rake leaves and do all of this great activity, giving it as a gift um, is such an amazing um, antidote for the feeling of lack or a feeling of fear. And in terms of giving, uh, oftentimes there are uh, expressed, there's numerous, like, what is a gift? And there are numerous kinds of gifts, right? From, and I like the Giving Tuesday description of, like, the gift of a smile, right? The gift of a smile, the gift of our attention, the gift of our presence, of our hearts. So the three sort of traditional gifts of a bodhisattva or, uh, well, I guess just gifts are the gift of the first is kind of material gifts. 
So the material, like thinking about some of the material resources that we have, the gift of a temple, the gift of land to, to practice in, the gift of, um, you know, financial contributions. It's interesting when I was um, practicing in Burma, I was able to go sit a, uh, a number of different retreats when I was traveling before coming to Austin Zen Center. I spent a year of travel and I was just struck when I, um, both in Thailand and in Burma, being able to go into um, going going into retreat. One of them was uh, in one of the retreats I did was in um, Swan Mok in Thailand, and it was an interesting, very very interesting retreat because it was filled with ravers from the you know the <laughs> the islands. <laughs> so. So people who had maybe drank too much or done too much ecstasy, I, I don't know, but there's a lot of young, mostly young kids who showed up for these, you know, 10 day, <laughs> sit all day long, get up super early. And, um, you know, and there was some monastic community that lived there, but we didn't really, you know, the group of uh, Westerners who were practicing in this retreat that I did there, um, the monastic community was kind of over there somewhere. So we didn't really interact so much except when we had a, you know, teachings happen and we would gather for teachings. Um, but other than that, it was just, uh, you know, mostly a bunch of like young, not always young, but like a, just some, you know, kind of like a seekers. Many people seemed to be like, you know, recovering from like, you know, they're, they're partying on the nearby islands. Um, and it was beautiful and wonderful and absolutely inspiring. And then a little bit later, I went to Burma and practiced at Pauk's uh, temple in Yangon, which is a urban, an urban temple. And one of the things that I was so struck with was, you know, in Burma, I think everybody goes and sits retreats. Not everybody, but <laughs> many, many, many. It's part of the culture to take the time out of one's busy life and settle into our, you know, our natural awareness, un, kind of as unencumbered with the mind of trying to figure stuff out or take care of this, you know, bills and responsibilities, obligations to take, to carve that time out. And even if it's just for one day to be able to go and sit and return to our true nature, to our original nature. And for those who, so the retreat I did there, it was a 10 day retreat. It was so hot. <laughs> I think it was actually the hottest time of the year, which is their new year. But they're um, seeing the people who there, you know, many people who are sitting who are obviously not monastics, like myself, I was not a monastic in the that tradition. And but then seeing all the people who came to the temple to to cook, and to I mean, they brought like, fa whole families like families would line up to physically hand out like, cookies, toothpaste, soap, you know, and then the meals were just 
incredible in their uh, their texture and flavor and and most of all what really I felt so nourished by was the feeling of how much love uh, dignity and respect was pouring forth through the food itself and the faces of those you know parents with their young children and sort of like giving the children like a little snack cakes to like hand to each individual you know practitioner and um yeah it's just such a beautiful beautiful uh custom to have be part of one's culture so you know in the u.s we have our uh we have i was thinking about the the practice of the secret santa <laughs> do you all know this practice of secret santa and i i don't think i've I've done that practice since I was in like maybe grade school, but this, you know, you kind of draw names and you get this name and it's like, as long as it's not your own name, you <laughs> should be an interesting one as well, but you get somebody's name and it's the, I really enjoyed it. It's like, you don't get a choice actually. Like you don't have a choice of whose name you pull out of the hat as the person who you're going to give a gift to. But, um, which makes it even more, I think, even more beautiful, right? Because sometimes I remember pulling out a name of somebody who you kind of felt like, oh, I don't like that person, or that person doesn't like me, or, you know, maybe even like there's a rivalry or like a, you know, an act, an active um, hostility or something that might be there. But the practice is the practice of giving, and it's not about who you're giving to, and in fact, to be giving a gift and to think from the person, the other person's perspective, what would be a gift to this person is itself a practice of selflessness, of moving away from our, um, our small self of um, likes and dislikes, opinions and... Um, judgments um so the practice of secret santa you know i think is just um maybe we should do that this year for uh, the holiday season <laughs> um so in in all of this um when i was at, so when i went to tasahara the um the first thing that happened <laughs> The first thing that happened when I arrived, um, well, actually not even before I arrived, I was, um, it looked like, you know, normally when you go to Tassajara, it's really hard to get to. Um, it's not, it's not easy unless you have your own vehicle, usually a four wheel drive, high clearance vehicle, which you need to get over the road. Right. But I, you know, I kind of was looking for rides maybe. And in the summer when the, when we're not in a pandemic and there aren't wildfires raging in the in the wilderness, you know, it can be pretty easy to find a ride. Not easy, but, um, you know, people are coming and going from Tassajara day after day. But during a practice period, that's not happening, right? Nobody leaves. Very few people. The only person who comes in and out is the person delivering supplies and groceries and produce. And so, you know, it looked like I was going to have to rent a car and 
you know, get myself to the airport, get a car and drive all the way in, not all the way in, but drive there and then rely on the generosity of Tassahara to somehow get me over the road because a rental car was not, would not, not, not be able to make it. Um, and then, you know, I went out to, uh, with some friends from San Francisco Zen Center and, um, we went out to, uh, to a local restaurant and, and I was just, I felt so happy. I was so happy to see them and to be going to Tassahara that I wanted to, um, you know, offer them dinner. So we, we decided to go out and, and had this wonderful time together. And as I was dropping them out, like walking them back to the Zen Center, um, you know, saying goodnight and, and they, they had offered to drive me to the airport and, uh, so that I could pick up the rental car. So, you know, as that was all planned, we were going to meet at this time in the morning and, and then I left and before I got to my room, back to my room in the main building, I got a little text message from one of them. And she said, why don't you just use our car? We don't need to rent a car, just use our car. We live in San Francisco. We don't need the car, except if we wanna leave, which we don't need to. So they gave me the gift of using their, you know, their vehicle so that I could get to Tassahara. And that's just kind of like, that's just how it seemed before I got there. I got to have that uh, that gift, to receive that gift. And then as soon as I get into Tassahara, I'm looking for where I'm gonna be staying. And I um, I was staying in the dorms, which are you know single rooms uh, above the dining room. And I get to my dorm room and somebody has laid out a, you know, a sleeping bag and uh, gave me a pillow. And then on the sleeping bag was a little welcome note with a bar of chocolate. And it was from Pat Yingst, who's there for her first practice period there. And uh, it just said, love Pat. And so, you know, and it turned out that Pat was living, her room was just across the hall from my room. So I came out of my room and she came out of her room and we embraced in the hallway. And then she said, could you give me a haircut? <laughs> so we went, you know, we went off and found some clippers and found an outlet you know, not so easy, Tazahara, but we found an outlet and I buzzed her hair. And, um, and, and that was just the beginning before Sashin started. And then during the Sashin, I already mentioned my, my wobble, <laughs> the small self coming up and saying, wait, this is gonna, this is gonna be hard, or this is gonna be, um, I'm going to be too tired or, you know, these doubts, self, self doubt of like, can I do this? Is my body up for 14 hours of sitting uh, a day, right? <sighs> so then Sashin starts and my teacher Ryushin Paul Haller is leading the Sashin. And I just have to say that, um, I don't think I've ever felt more gratitude to Paul than I than ever. Like I just seeing him, you know, in his element, maybe just expounding teachings. He offered himself fully to the Sangha. And, you know, privately he had told me, not privately, but he told me in a conversation before we started that he was a little worried about how it was going to go. Tassahara practice period. When I was a student there, usually there were between 45 and 60 monks uh, practicing in the valley for a practice period. 
And this is the first practice period that they were holding uh, since prior to the pandemic. And they were, you know, they were worried about having enough people to support the monastic, the container and to support all the things that go into supporting a practice period or a sashin, a full doan rio of trained people, you know, having the senior staff of a director and a tenzo and a uh, somebody who's in charge of the kitchen and somebody who's in charge of, you know, guests and somebody who's in charge of the work tasks and um, the treasurer, like all these different positions, um, all the way down to the person who, you know, hits the Han in the morning, right? Somebody gets up earlier than anybody else. Well, anybody else except him, who as the Shuso, you know, got up so that he could be done with the wake up bell by 3.50 in the morning every morning throughout the entire three month ongo. So this practice period was a little light because of the pandemic, because they hadn't had practice periods. So they had very, very few students who had much seniority at all. Um, and th I think there were 35 students in the Valley for this practice period, which I'm sure there have been practice periods at Tassajara that may have had fewer than that but not in a very long time. So Paul confessed that he was a little worried about, you know, is this gonna feel like ongo? Is this gonna feel like a practice period? And and through that time, so they had been, this was the middle sashin of their practice period. I think we we're in the middle point of our practice period here in Austin. But at the middle point of the practice period, he said, it just, un, it just blossomed and you know, later on, I talked to the director <laughs> and she was like, well, yeah, it has. And it's been really hard. <laughs> um, but everyone just, you know, just just the practice energy was very strong. And sometimes, you know, we were Paul and I were talking sometimes when you don't think you have enough that's when the opportunity to step forward comes up the most when you have a fully staffed you know everything's taken care of then people don't necessarily have the opportunity to give or the inclination doesn't even arise because eh, it's all taken care of but when you have this compressed smaller group it's like everyone there's there's opportunities to extend into like okay what's needed here and so everyone gets to practice in ways that they may not be able to practice in if they were you know if it were fully you know, uh, robustly staffed, right? So Paul, again, he was teaching, um, specifically he was teaching on, I mean, Paul, yeah, he, he every time I've uh, done a practice period with him and asked him, what are you leading the practice period on? He said, he always says, Buddha Dharma. <laughs> but this particular practice period had the flavor of, uh, he was comparing a, version of uh, Zazen instruction from Chonglu from a, maybe 150 years prior to Dogen. Uh, the text that Dogen used, uh, one of probably several versions of this text, to write the Fukan Zazengi, or the universal recommendation for the practice of Zazen. And he was kind of doing this kind of compare and contrast between these two versions of Zazen instruction. And um, 
just his dharma talks each day the feeling of um of care and delight that was you know in my mind just seemed to be you know emanating for every pore of paul's body <laughs> he was just you know i felt like wow he's really on fire here and i feel so fortunate to be able to partake in this in these teachings and in this space and time with these people who many of whom i had never met and many of whom i have practiced with for years and years various people who were there who i'd known when i was a student there and then of course with tim there as the Chousseau, the head head student with Pat there as the um, as a Tongario student, and many of you may remember Joshin Shavel, who is an Eno and resident at Austin Zanzibar. He started when I arrived in 2013 as the Eno. Then um, it was his first practice period as well. And you know, Joshin and I didn't even we didn't speak to one another until after the end of Sashin. But every time we passed one another just this bow, we bowed to one another and just the feeling of mutual love and respect and this, this dignity of taking up our vow as the most important thing um, that was transmitted. It felt like that was being transmitted every time we passed and bowed, just this kindly, kindly warm heartedness. So having that be um, kind of the ground of, uh, of being, you know, through every movement, every time stepping into your robes and stepping onto the path, Paul, um, one of the many offerings that he gave at some point, uh, the first day there was like an exercise, an exercise period where people were, you know, you know, encouraged, expected, I'd say expected, <laughs> um, expected to take that time to actually nourish the body through exercise. So whether it's walking up the road, doing yoga or qigong, tai chi, um, stretching. So I went to the retreat hall, my first exercise period, and was going to do some, you know, I've been doing some physical therapy for my uh, hips. And so I was there doing some exercises. And Paul came in and he started doing his own thing and a couple other people came in and it just kind of spontaneously made it became a, a yoga class <laughs> that Paul led. And then eventually he made an announcement at our, you know, we had a mostly silent work circle every day. And he said, just, just so people may, you know, know every day during this time, we're, you know, I'm offering this class and you're welcome to join for part or all of it. And so just this, again, this feeling of this open heartedness and like, how can I give of, you know, to, how can I give in a way that supports your practice of touching down into our innate, open, pure mind of awareness? So um, that was just another example. Um, and then after each lecture, we did um, outdoor kinhin, which uh, as some of you, many of you who have done retreats at Austin Zen Center, we have the ability to do oftentimes after lecture, where we have this spacious yard with a kinhin path 
that we can go out and sometimes it's, you know, we do slow kinyin or fast kinyin, but we're able to be, uh, take our practice into motion off our cushions and into movement. And many other retreat styles, like if you were to do many Vipassana retreats, there's like 45 minutes of sitting and then 45 minutes of walking and they alternate back and forth. So taking that, um, the stillness of sitting zazen and then extending that into motion, whether it's kinhin walking meditation or into work practice um, or into, you know, into taking a break, just taking a break, <laughs> which I'm not even, yeah, what is taking a break when you're in Sashin, right? Um, but uh, during this, these daily, we only, we missed one day of walking meditation because we had rain and rain. I have to say in California right now is a huge gift, but we would go out and walk for about, maybe it was, it took about 20 minutes to walk all the way down the path to the flats and all the way to the, to the, where the Creek bend is. And then back for those of you who know Tassara and then back into the Zendo. And, you know, I, I so uh, I want to take a picture of the, of all of us walking. I, I didn't end up doing that, but <laughs> because it's kind of that's not really done taking pictures of people when they don't know they're being taken. <laughs> but I really you know struggled against like, oh, I just want to take a picture of all the, you know, just the backs of people walking. But the. Um, the taking a walk went in silence. And the, you know, opening the senses to the crunch of the gravel, to the sound of the creek, to the sycamore trees reaching out of the creek and, you know, the leaves, just all the leaves turning colors, not quite all, you know, they haven't all dumped their leaves yet, but there's, you know, they're starting to lose their leaves. The creek starts to rise when the leaves go because the trees need less water. So even if there's no rain, this, the creek rises. So these, just these little details of the physicality of the natural environment and just being able to soak that in, you know, to touch back down again into, you know, when I think of Buddha nature, it's not our Buddha nature. It's not other Buddha, other people's Buddha's nature. It's not an own thing. It is it is the ground of being itself and nature is a beautiful expression of this being so does a dog have buddha nature well <laughs> i say yes there is a dog at tasara too which is um kind of a magical thing it's not not so common to have a dog there and uh during the work circle the dog i don't even know the name of the dog the dog would come by and kind of do a little jindo around and sort of sniff everybody's hands and you know this slow wag of the tail so the feeling of all of us together um is so incredibly present during during a practice period or during during sashin you know having a schedule to uh to, to kind of enter into, to having, um, you know, people who sit on either side of you, the, the gift of awareness of just the most tiny details, you know, 
getting to know people in this non-verbal, such an intimate way where I don't even remember, I don't know people's names, but one of the, um, one of the doans when, when doing kinhin, you know, he, the doan does the clackers to start and end kinhin and uh, just walking behind him and noticing the, the way that when one foot would go forward, it would land, the other foot would go forward and would, his whole body would shift slightly with the second foot. And just these little details that, you know, you might think when you're in a kind of doing mode or in the busyness of life, those details are so on and like, oh, who cares? <laughs> who cares that this person has this, this little, you know, slight movement on their second foot going, you know, stepping forward. But when when you're so intimate and open and um, non-doing, just practicing being, those little details come alive. And, um, and just, you know, would just bring joy to me. I can't tell you how much joy, just like, oh, I know this person in this in this way. Like I know nothing about the details of this person's life, and yet there's this feeling of very just profound, intimate connection. And those of you who have sat sashin, um, or who sit zazen, um, I think know this as well. The other thing that uh, I wanted to remark on, and I'll try and finish soon. Um, I got to work in the kitchen during Sashin and Pat was, uh, she was one of the kitchen workers. That's been her position. I, I hope some of you read Pat's letter to the Sangha or heard it when it was read uh, not so long ago, but she's been working in the kitchen. And um, I just wanna say a few things about Pat because um, because all of you, you know, know and love her deeply. And uh, just to say that, you know, she was in the kitchen and so I got to work with Pat in the kitchen, the Tassahar kitchen every day, except when I was a server and then had other other duties in the uh, the work time. But um, I have never seen Pat so joyous. And so just she just was walking around with this beaming smile. And Tim told me this was the case when I talked to him earlier. But just this um, Pat herself just being this joyous being, just glowing. And then I kept hearing, like I had a couple of practice discussions with people and um, I kept hearing from people before before the Sashin, during Sashin, and then after Sashin, people who were um, greatly inspired by her practice, by the depth of her practice. So I had, you know, young students who were in their 20s say, oh, it's been so hard to get up so early and it's just, I'm exhausted all the time. And I think to myself, oh, I'm going to sign out of the Zendo because I, you know, you, it does hard. There's a, a pad where if you're not going to come to any, any event, you need to sign out or somebody will come find you and ask you if you're okay. Right. So this one woman told me that, you know, she was struggling with sleepiness. She hadn't gotten a good night's sleep, but then she was like, but then I thought about Pat and Pat never misses Zazen. <laughs> like sometimes even when she has a, a scheduled break because she was the jikido the night before the you know she has a you know gets to, you get to take the first period off after your you know your fire watch or your jikido 
she would say she said something like sometimes even when i know she's you know she's got a break she's still in the zendo sitting and her love for zazen just you know kept me going right so hearing these little stories um of of someone who i was really thrilled i mean the reason i went to tasahara you know um specifically was to be of support to tim and to pat and to just drop into that and um into that that world and so just just looking at the gift that pat had given to new students you know struggling students who are like ah oh, can i do this pat's doing it <laughs> she's you know she's i don't know how old pat is but she's over she's over 70 and so these robust you know, 25 year olds are like struggling and pat's just like just doing it with a smile right and not to say that you know it's not a gift to just be yourself whether it's a smile or not right um but then also just hearing stories of uh just just appreciation so much appreciation for um for pat's humor right which we i think we all we all are familiar with as well so in working in the kitchen though i just want to say that on the altar of the kitchen uh in the Tassahar kitchen, there are um, there are these little round discs of wood that, when I was Tenzo, I was given them and told to keep them to keep them secret. I mean, I, this is just all all this stuff is made up. There's no big tradition with these these little circles, so I kept them secret. <laughs> but you know, some Tenzo after me decided to put them on the altar, so now they're like part of the altar, and they say the three minds that Dogen Zenji talks about in Tenzo Kyokun magnanimous mind big mind uh parental or sometimes called grand parental mind or the tender mind the mind of taking care and then joyous mind so those are on the altar and and then um you know every as as many of you who have served been a server at uh during sashin um the first you know when preparing the meal um the first bowls go to Manjushri, who's on the altar in our Zendo, in Zendos in general, uh, Manjushri is on the altar. And that's given these, you know, little tiny bowls for Manjushri, little Oryoki bowls, and a little, um, an offering in each bowl. And so much of the practice is making offerings. So, and for those of you who just sat the weekend retreat, I'm sure you had the same experience of um you know doing the full the the meal chant before receiving breakfast and lunch you know it starts before you even open your bowl there's an invocation of may we with all beings realize the emptiness of the three wheels giver receiver and gift they this is the all of them coming up together no separation between giver receiver and gift that you can't have a giver without a receiver. You can't have a gift. And then through the meal chant itself, just reflecting on um, uh, the gratitude, again, the gratitude that is expressed, that we invoke every time we are about to offer, we're about to take in food. So I'm gonna just read some of the, the meal chant to, to remind us all. We reflect on the effort that brought us this food and consider how it comes to us. 
we reflect on our virtue and practice and whether we are worthy of this offering. And again, this is not in a shame worthiness. I mean, it's not the intention here, but actually to inspire, like, how can I be worthy of this offering? How do I not waste this life? How do I turn this life into a beacon of practice for all beings? We regard it, this off this food that we're about to receive, we regard it as essential to keep the mind free from excesses such as greed. And then there's, you know, throughout the meal, there's various offerings that are invoked. So the main offering is to the triple treasure, to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Then we make offerings to the four benefactors and then to the six realms of beings, which again, these include the hungry ghosts. So every meal, every uh, breakfast and, and the, every formal meal, the breakfast and dinner, you're making offerings to hell realm beings, to hungry ghosts, to animals, to the uh, devas and to gods and humans. And then making offerings, and they do the offerings. I think uh, we don't do this in Austin. Uh, we don't make offerings to the spirits. So lunchtime, usually you take a little portion of your food and you put it at the end of your, your spatula, your setsu, and then it gets collected. But the offering, it's, is, you know, uh, making, giving offerings to all of you, all the beings in the 10 directions, all the spirits. So it's a spirit offering. And then even, I mean, Zen is so cool. <laughs> the practices are so, um, the, the richness of, um, you know, we bow before using the toilet. When we have our, what we, you know, people sometimes call is our wastewater after, you know, the, the water that comes out to wash our bowls in Orioki, you know, we take a little sip of the, the sort of the oily layer, we take that sip. And then we offer this sort of clear middle layer of, of the water after using the water to wash our bowls. And then the little last bit, the sort of the dregs, you know, we take that, we sip that. But when the water buckets come out to collect the water from us, you know, we, we, we go into it, we, we make an offering then, you know, we offer this water to the many spirits in order to satisfy them. So, you know, through every step of the way, there's making offerings and reflecting on our, uh, what we receive. So what we're able to give, what we're able to receive, and the tremendous potential of the giver, receiver, and gift all coming up together. And then at the very end of the meal, it ends with this, I think it's called the verse of purity, which is, abiding in this ephemeral world like a lotus in muddy water the mind is pure and goes beyond thus we bow to buddha right so at the very end we're invoking this pure mind which is as uh those of you who have been uh listening to kokyo's teachings during this practice period on buddha nature you know this pure mind is always present though sometimes occluded by you know, uh, by some hindrances, like the sky is always vast and um, universal, <laughs> even though sometimes the clouds pass over it and there are stormy weather. There's, you know, storms that occlude us from 
in that moment seeing the sky itself but knowing knowing deeply with trust with respect that it is there that it is always the um present and that we even doing one breath zazen we can touch down into so um i was going to say a little bit more i wanted to talk a little bit more about um some of our the uh the fundraising efforts of austin zen center which is always a tricky thing right fundraising is always a very tricky thing because it's you know you want to fundraise because you want to give people the opportunity opportunity to give and to receive what is given with gratitude but sometimes you know and uh you know you don't want to be you know the practice of even the practice of asking for donations in many buddhist sects and traditions including zen is kind of frowned upon actually you don't ask and shohaku kumura um he said that when he was the treasurer at the little Zen center that he and two others started in Massachusetts, Pioneer Valley Zen center, he said, there's two methods of fundraising. One is takahatsu, which is alms rounds, going out with a begging bowl. And you don't go asking people to please give me food, right? You just walk and chant and you're offering chants and you're offering Dharma and people can donate if they want to, they can give food and, um, or money or resources um, or a smile, right? Anything helps. You see this oftentimes when people are begging on street corners, right? You know, anything helps, even a smile, your presence. Oh my goodness, your presence. Just being able to make eye contact is a gift, right? So he, but Shohaku said when he was the treasurer, he made a policy that, that the, the, it was no donation requested, no donation refused. That's, um, and he said, you know, also that when, when a temple asks for donations, it is a donations to Buddha, Dharma and Sangha to not think of when receiving donations. Oh, this is, you know, to not go into comparative mind, but just the mind of gratitude, right? The three treasures is what is receiving the gift. Um, and whatever the gift is, when receiving the gift to utilize that gift in the best way to serve you know this question going back to like what do we serve who do we serve we serve the triple treasure and in serving the triple treasure is the way in, in Choku says the way to be free from the three poisons while working for the sake of the dharma our practice of zazen is what cultivates this attitude this attitude of, you know, he even says, he extends it not to be happy when receiving a donation or to be like, oh, look at this great donation. I mean, it's kind of a strange thing, right? Because in some sense, why not be happy to receive? It's a, it's a little bit paradoxical. <laughs> and he, he talks about that. Shaku talks about that as well. But um, to not be overjoyed by receiving the donation because you can fall very easily into then comparative mind um, and yet not rejecting any donation. Um, but then he, Shohaku also mentions in uh, Shobogenzo Zui Monkey, he says, Dogen instructed, do not make arrangements in advance for obtaining food or clothing. Only when you run out of food and have nothing to cook should you beg for food. Even planning ahead, who to ask for what, 
what you need. That's the same as storing food. So these are some strict admonitions that uh, I, I've never practiced that um, fiercely. You know, I think Kokyo, you have um, practiced that fiercely of like not asking unless it's like there's nothing, that, you know, there's uh, uh, all the food is gone. So I think, you know, somebody was going to make some announcements about we need help for Sashin. We need people to cook and help <laughs> prepare food. <laughs> so so that's all there, but I'm not going to make that announcement today, just in, in honor of, of Dogen and Zui Monkey. Um, but just to say that um, what an opportunity to to practice in harmony with other beings, with all beings and to um to to open our hearts to this the emptiness of giver receiver and gift as we go through this next week of thanksgiving with all the black friday sales and the consumerism to you know to reflect on like the spirit of generosity of the um you know, I didn't even get into like generosity of material goods and Dharma, the giving of Dharma. And then maybe oftentimes one of my, my favorite, the gift of the Bodhisattva is the gift of fearlessness or the, the gift of trusting in our innate true nature. Um, maybe my next talk will be on the specifically on the, um, what it means to trust in not sort of the oh our own Buddha nature, but in others, people's Buddha nature, whether or not it looks like they are expressing it. Like, what does it mean to trust deeply? Um, so for another time. Thank you all very much. Are there any comments or questions? Yes. Dave. Hello, hello. Good morning. Um, thanks for telling us about your experience at Tassajara. Um, it's great to hear about Tim and Pat and Paul and your experience. Um, I Tassajara is a little bit of a mystery to me, so I'm always. It's like you're you're removing some of the veils of, of what Tassajara is for me. So it's, it's interesting to hear about it. Um, I, when you're, when you've been talking about Donna and um, one of the things that came to mind for me is something you gave to me and I wanted to um, acknowledge it and, and thank you for it. Um, in February, when um the residents and you and, and the Sangha in general um, um, organized a ceremony for my mom. At the end of the ceremony, you bowed to me. And I felt this channel of energy from your bow to me. And I feel like it was the entirety of the Sangha and the entirety of couple thousand years of, of history and, and thought practice, as we've talked about, um, coming right into me through you and through the Sangha and, and how you represent the Sangha. And 
how the residents help pull all that together. Um, so I, I can't tell you that somehow in that moment, in that one bow mm. was an incredible um, gift to me. Um, and um, a reminder and a kind of a placeholder for me, if you will, of what Donna is and what it can be and the many forms it can take and the power that it can have. Mm. So I would say thank you to you. I express my gratitude to you for that moment and also to all of the people and conditions and moments that led up to you mm. being able to give me that bow and that bow. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for receiving the bow. And yes, indeed, the uh, all of reality all together conspired to create that moment and many moments beyond. Thank you. Yes, Jess. Hello, good morning. Morning. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for, um, for your sincerity and transmission. I really appreciated it. And I actually, actually feel pretty emotional about it. Um, so something that I keep cycling through, um, I hope this isn't received as like controversial. This is just kind of truth for me is like a feeling of wanting to like jump in and give everything and that and 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 feeling real like connection and bliss and abundance and then um like and that's kind of one side and then the feeling of of uh of lack and a snapback and feeling like but this is taking from all of these other aspects like that i also need to to give you know you know to and really kind of actually all through my life this is a real karmic thing for me like a real cycle through this this circle and um like as you were talking about some of your feelings of like small self like oh why am i why am i here though really you know and like why did i do this to myself and whatever um i was really struck by like when we start with with a feeling of of enough and having enough and we give from a bliss realm that's wonderful but there's not a transformation there per se maybe there is but 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 when we have when we start when we go through when we walk through the fire of lack yeah there's a transformation available and that like this isn't this isn't separate from the feeling of abundance. You know what I mean? It's like, it's really like part of it. And it's not something because like what I struggle with is kind of like, you're not a good person because you're feeling resentment right now. Oh yes. You know what I mean? Like you're like, you're not supposed to be feeling this. Like you're like, you're not a good Buddhist. Like what's wrong with you? But that's not true. You know what I mean? 
I do. I don't, Actually, I don't know if that's a question. <laughs> yesterday, you know, this is reminding me, yesterday I was speaking with um, Shoho and Kokyo, and, and one thing that we were, we were talking about, just like the topic of, of Donna Paramita, and uh, uh, one thing that came up was this, the idea that if you, it's, Kokyo brought this up, that it's better, it's better not to give if the giving brings resentment. I don't know if that's the way you you think, Tokyo, but but if if you uh, the other the other one that's a huge one is you know giving like I said there's different kinds of giving and there's not all giving is generous giving, right? So if it doesn't come from the heart of generosity, then um, so on the one hand you could say well then maybe that's not the time to give if it's not coming from a joyful generous heart, right? And yes, so that's an expression of Dana Parmita is to give with a generous heart. But there's also the practice of Dana Parmita. So there's the practice aspect, <laughs> and there's the expression of a bodhisattva or the expression of an enlightening being, the expression mm -hmm. of Buddha nature. And then there's the practice. So there's always this. So and if we're aware, right, if we're sitting a lot and we're open, and receiving the universe and manifesting the universe, you know, giving this giving and receiving, um, we can start to see the nuances of, you know, where is this, where is the source of this gift or this giving? You know, what is the source of it? And is this a practice or is this an expression? Not to get all technical about it, but, but like in the body, where do you feel it come from? Does it feel like tightening or does it feel like opening? One of the things that I will say that is a huge part, I didn't even get to talking about this, but what does it mean to give or to do just to give energy out of a feeling of obligation? Because a generous heart does not, it's in some ways, obligation or duty. So I'll just confess that one of my, in I had Dokusan with Paul and, and at, during that, that meeting, one of the things he said to me was, Mako, you you um your conditioning is that of there's a lot of duty you've got a duty bound like you you operate from feelings of duty quite frequently like you have a strong sense of duty and you know there's all kinds of reasons for that there's you know growing up with a japanese mother and like you know there's <laughs> there's a lot of like duty obligation responsibility and um i remember gill once saying you know um you know he's kind of not poo-pooing, but, but basically kind of highlighting, like, if done out of obligation as a poet, it's obligation is kind of not the same thing as generosity, unless the obligation is itself like, like a parent with a child. It's like this child is not separate. So on one sense, you can say this is a an obligation, it's my responsibility as I'm the parent, right? But if it, it's, it's almost like, to call it obligation or duty, it's like something you say after the fact, it's not, you know, it's actually, the open heart of like non-separation is where the gift is coming from, right? Mm. Give that I, care. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that that all really resonates. And and I I like the distinction of um, practice and expression. And when we're not in expression, like it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The the distinction is very interesting because for me, a lot of I have that same obligation thing. Very annoying. But it's a lot of times the way to get through it is to show up yeah. 
And then the opening, the expression emerges like from the flames. Hmm. You know, and and not finding and not the edge you know finding the it's edge. A, it's, it's 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 an edge thing you know and like just because i do also feel contracted and i also feel like but i should be doing this other stuff you know why am i whatever like i know at this point in life that if i just if i jump then they're you know, especially in terms of this practice, like there is never a time when I show up to the Zendo and I come away being like, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> right, exactly. That's like, that's very telling, right? Yeah. Like, has anybody had the experience of like, oh, I really shouldn't have sat that period of Zazen? <laughs> Maybe there's like, oh, I could have been more awake or I could have been more present, but not like, oh, I shouldn't have gone to sit. You know, that was a bad idea. Yeah, that's that's a really uh, huge insight into into practice. Like, what is the next moment? And to 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 step forward into the moment and trust in uh, awareness to reveal, right? And again, to say that in in giving or saving all the idea of the bodhisattva vow of saving all beings that includes ourselves as well, right? And if one's you know uh overwhelmed or stretched too thin or like this the importance of self-care to in order to be able to care for others is you know is a huge can be a huge struggle i i confess my own struggle with self-care and you know allowing the well to run dry or seemingly to run dry and then it feels like i'm just like there's nothing there's no water left here i can't or no you know nectar to scoop you know <laughs> And so like, what is it, what is replenishing? So in order, like, how do you keep turning the wheel of giver, receiver and gift, right? To have a gift, you know, to become the giver, to become the receiver, like all of it needs to be happening all at once. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your expression. Uh, Jose. I see your hand. Yes. Hello, Mako. Morning. Morning. Uh, while on the topic of giving from the small self, um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I remember encountering a group of uh, anthropologists um, uh, earlier who uh, were very much convinced that all forms of altruism are completely like 100%, uh, you know, like selfishly motivated. Mm. Um, and so they, and they could cite mean. evidence for it and everything. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I was wondering, uh, you know, to what extent uh, do you uh, agree or disagree with this view? Uh, and uh, how, how can you, uh, how can you uh, reconcile this with, uh, you know, giving from the small self versus giving from the big self? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so like in one's own practice of giving, there, there can be like, uh, you know, many different motivations, right? You know, if the motivation for giving is that I'm not worthy. I don't respect myself. I don't feel worthy of respect. So I need to give in order to get respect. Like that can be very psychologically damaging, right? That can bolster a sense of inadequacy or not enough, right? So, so how do you know where, you know, how do you know where the giving is coming from? Right. Um, the, the view that you just described, I think of is in Western philosophy is called psycho psychological hedonism. And it's kind of like, it's non-falsifiable. It's just kind of like it's ends up being by definition. So therefore not very 
uh, illuminating of, of psychology or human nature, right? So the person throwing themselves on the grenade, right? For example, it's like, if they didn't have a sense of like, you know, <laughs> they're doing it for the, you know, that really ultimately they're doing it for their own better because they wouldn't be able to live with themselves if they didn't do it or something. It's like, you know, it's a little bit of a, a philosophical pitfall to to fall into to be wary to be wary of um but what really i think is the illuminating aspect especially for any kind of contemplative practice or tradition is we don't know we don't know and but we can get close closer and closer um by paying attention you know not by thinking right so not in the thinking of it, but by like, if you don't have trust, you know, that, um, you know, like if there's no trust in like this Fukan Zazenki starts with the way is basically perfect and all pervading, you know, how could it be contingent on, on practice and, uh, and realization, right? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. There's no need for special effort. You know, the whole body is free from the world. Like this is all very beautiful. And if you don't feel it, or maybe, you know, this is like, you know, knowing that the, the sky is vast and, uh, and open despite the cloudy days, right? But to, to find that in one's own practice is gonna be through the body. Right. It's going to be through actually quieting down the chatter of the monkey mind and resonating deeply with what's happening in this moment. Where's my energy? Where does my energy get stuck? When I lean this way, what comes up? And so the practice of our sitting practice is attuning to not what we think. It's not what we think. It's what we feel and the you know it's uh what we ex what we're experiencing and what um not necessarily even through the senses like you know we can start by experiencing our senses but even deeper than that like what's going beyond even our senses you know what is uh experiencing a ground of being that is that has no agenda right and and even in the fukan zazegi there's this one line which i always thought was really interesting was like he says something like beyond all human agency, like go beyond all your agency, right? Gain accord with the enlightenment of the Buddhas, succeed to the legitimate lineage of our ancestors, Samadhi, constantly perform in such a way and you will be such a person, right? Your treasure store, your treasure will open of itself. Like you don't need to put effort into it. And yes, you know, if there's the slightest thing that comes up, I mean, he kind of goes back and forth. Even if there's a slight discrepancy, it can, you know, the way it can be is, you know, the difference between heaven and earth is like, this can be this vast chasm, but like, you know, what's true. So like the question of what's true to ask that question, not with our discriminating consciousness, but with our whole being. Right? And that's what we're that's what we're all practicing, and uh, all our efforts are, you know, at a temple like the Austin Zen Center. The efforts are, you know, this is like what who do we serve? What are we serving? It's like ultimately, we're serving the process of waking up to our true nature, right? So like, how do we maybe you know, these are further discussions that we'll have.
on the board? <laughs> How do we get rid of the extra? Like, right? What is concentration? Like, what is being our finding our true nature? It's like getting kind of letting go of things that are the extra things. Like, well, we don't really need to do this thing. Let's let's get back to what's most important. What is the most fundamental? Right. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rich, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for, for that wonderful talk. And um, I kind of wanted to pick up on what you just said about um, the discussions at the board level. Um, I was in um, a, a class, I think Karen was there also, provided by the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. Oh, and a lot of people that. from San Francisco Zen Center there were there also. It was about equity, diversity, and inclusion. It was it was offered by the East Bay Meditation Center. And one of the questions that came up was, I, this is a question I'd like to ask to the, not to you specifically, but to the board and to everybody, which is, what are we willing to give up in order to have a community that's more diverse and inclusive? Mm -hmm. So... That's not a, a, anything I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying this is a question they asked everybody there. Yeah. It was a question that I think needs to be repeated. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. What are we willing to give up in order to have a community that is more equitable, diverse, and inclusive? Right. I think that's great. One thing that comes up to mind is let's stop charging for anything. That could be a thing we do. Let's have a completely donation-based uh, center. It would make the accounting much more simple. <laughs> it would be in alignment with our vow of generosity. Right. Um, in, and then, you know, and then going from there, there's all kinds of questions of what, uh, you know, to reflect on what are we willing to give up? You know, what, and this is, I think is very similar to this question of, what are the resource heavy things that we do that we you know we can give up so that we can actually focus on our core our core practice as opposed to the things that maybe we think we need to do maybe those things that we think we need are actually coming from a place of lack right i think the the move from from having program fees and and so forth and it's not like you wouldn't have membership of of members and supporters but like Maybe, um, you know, the, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting uh, thinking about how Gil Fronsdell, who has been, you know, I don't know how long he's had his starting with his sit, just a sitting group, but he started with, I think, a just completely donation based model. And every year, like they would run retreats and the people who came to cook for retreats and the food, the, the you know, there's a price to holding a retreat, you have to rent a space or you have to you know, pay for the bills, electricity, you have to buy the food, you've got to pay for, you know, maybe, you know, you've got to solicit volunteers, a lot of, you know, volunteers need to come into play to run a retreat, right? So what he did was, okay, we're going to offer this and we're going to say, you know, please give us, you know, if you enjoyed the teachings and enjoyed this retreat, then, you know, and feel inspired to give, you know, to support us to giving more retreats, you know, please give what you can please give what makes uh what gives you the feeling of like i'm extending but not overextending right 
And then each year they would look at what they had, the resources they had, and they would be able to say, well, we have enough resources to do three retreats this year. Right. And then at the end of that year, it'd be like they would do the same thing where they'd say, you know, please give if you feel inspired to do so. And then soon it's, you know, they've got we're able to do four retreats or, you know, and, and to build up that way instead of having a, a sort of a business based model of like, you know, resources and, and like we need to hold on to this and we need to, you know, it's uh, it's very different. I mean, it's you know, and for a center like Austin Zen Center or San Francisco Zen Center to contemplate going to a Donna, an Donna only model, you know, sparks a lot of fear in people. How are we going to survive? How are we going to be able to do anything if we, you know, we, people don't know of our expenses. They don't know how much cost to do that, you know. So again, it's like, how do we step forward and offer what, uh, how do we reach as many people who are interested in being reached. Now, that is a, sometimes it's a danger of uh, looking around one's community and saying, we're not diverse enough. We need to get people who don't look like the people who are already here. So then those people become like something to procure and become objectified. So there's that danger, like, like how do we take all of it and, um, you know, become the, uh, an open, welcoming sangha to everyone who wishes to practice in this 1500 year tradition. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think one of the questions that came up also was um, about like, how do you decenter a particular group from the, the focus of the, you know, like we want this, you know, the, the majority, you know, if everybody says we want this, well, that sort of excludes the minority of people who are like, well, we need this also. And so it's like, how do you balance those, those yeah. like, you know, of course. Uh, and so like, what are the, what is the majority of people who want this willing to give up and a lot of those other people, a chance to have a space and, a, and a sort of an experience that illuminates their practice, you know, and you know what I mean? So that was another, another focus of the, of the, dis, of this discussion. That sounds like a, a fantastic visioning board meeting i think having this conversation on that level would be fantastic and and maybe even not just on the board level but on a community meeting level i think that would be fantastic thank you very much for bringing that up thank you very much for everyone for your attention and your presence and your practice have a wonderful afternoon and remainder of this week. Bye-bye.